0: Welcome to Wild Wonders Why, a companion podcast just smart enough to know better. This episode is titled Women in Science, Space, Space Heritage. Heritage. Now, humans have been tootling around in space for about 70 years now, going into space, going as far as the moon with our bodies anyway, sending probes out uh, I mean, out of our solar system now it's, with the Voyager probes. Every planet has pretty much been visited by some probe. But really, even though it's 70 years, it's very much early days. Even though it's early days, do we have heritage? Do we should be doing archaeology. And the moment we start talking about heritage and archaeology in space, of course, we must talk to Dr. Space Junk herself, Dr. Alice Gorman. Hello, Dr. Alice. Hello,
1: Greg. You know, it is always an absolute pleasure to talk to you about these kinds of things. And it's just so great that in your podcast, you have taken the time to highlight some of these very interesting issues.
0: Now, I have a question. How much heritage do we have in space? It's, it doesn't seem that long. On one hand, you know, it's only just started. but On the other hand, it's 70 years. So, is, I mean, are there, is there things we should be protecting and looking after? And is there anything that you want to point out to us?
1: Well, obviously, as a space archaeologist and heritage <laughs> expert, I think there's a huge amount of extraordinary heritage in that 70 years. And if you think about it as well, in the modern era we make more stuff and we discard more stuff there are more people I think it, the latest figure is something like right now there are 7.8 billion people on earth
0: oh my goodness so okay.
1: that's um that's a, a huge amount of stuff and of course we don't need all of this stuff but I think it's important to think of, I mean, I know people talk about future generations and our children's children all the time. It's become a little bit of an overused cliche, but really we do have to be thinking about those people Mm -hmm. and there will be people in the future who will be interested in the early space age and even the middle space age and the later space age. And it would be great if we kind of made a few good decisions right now. And, you know, we can't predict what, people in the future will want to know what they'll be interested in. But we can have a go. We can do our best. Just make sure that everything isn't destroyed. Mm. And just an example of that, a, a little spacecraft that I love talking about because I think it's so extraordinary. A piece of space junk in Earth orbit right now is the Australis Oscar 5 amateur satellite that was made by a group of students and their friends on the tiniest budget ever at Melbourne University in the mid 1960s and launched in 1970. And it's a wonderful piece of Australian space heritage. So, you know, if you, you look at the bigger scheme of things, it, it's it, not a satellite that set the world on fire, metaphorically speaking, but to Australians and to our new ish um, space era, now that we've got the Space Agency. That's a really important story. These these students getting out there in space, and and there's a million stories like that. So that's the kind of thing I think uh, we should be thinking about in terms of space heritage.
0: I saw a story recently where they were tracking, uh, as we do, tracking near Earth objects to make sure that they don't get too near Earth, and uh, and giving an idea of what's up in there. And they and the scientists were saying, oh, there's some sort of asteroid that's in a solar orbit. And uh, it's quite close. It came quite close to Earth. And someone went, wait, we think this might be due to its albedo, due to its reflectiveness. We think this might actually be one of the uh, upper stages of one of, I, I believe, one of the lunar uh, uh lunar rockets, the rockets that went to the moon that has been just discarded and then it's gone into a, into a heliocentric orbit. And so they couldn't prove it, but they're pretty confident that that's what it is because just due to where it is in space and how it came very close to the earth again, that's probably, it's come back to where it started basically. So these things are really, really interesting that uh a, we want to know where the earth not run into them, but B, that's an amazing bit of heritage. If in if a couple of decades, hundreds of years, whatever, we can go up and grab that from space and bring it back or park it somewhere so people can go visit it, that's pretty amazing.
1: That is pretty amazing. I think that was a Centaur upper stage from Apollo 14, one of those ones, anyway. I doubt your
0: superior knowledge.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't always remember things. But just to think of the the, the life that object has had, part of one of the most famous series of missions that humanity has ever undertaken, mm. and then by itself sort of orphaned out there circling the Sun, mm. unknown and unmissed until suddenly we get this little glimpse of it. Yeah, I think it's extraordinary.
0: And one of a lot uh, of the stories that go around are, of course, just due to our society and who we are and who we sent up originally is a lot of stories about dudes let's face it, a lot of dudes have gone into space. Not as many women have gone into space. And uh, a lot of the stories are about dudes. When I think of the top of my head, I think of Yuri Gagarin. I think of Neil Armstrong, both dudes. But of course, women have gone into space as well. And in fact, made important and uh, groundbreaking changes just by being there. And we'll open it up to you a bit later. I just I found this fascinating talking about how do you go to the toilet in space? And, and of course what you had to do, it's all very glamorous back in the day, back in the, the original steps, like the John Glenn era, the very, very first American to go into space, you had to basically poop into a bag. Uh, and that was all very exciting. You put your butt up against a bag and you pooped into it and you hoped you caught it. You hoped because <laughs> otherwise. Uh, and it, which amazes me because you think you, you're up in space you don't want I, I, if I put a coffee on my computer by mistake or it gets too moist it all goes wrong yeah, yeah, oh my goodness you had floating poop no, no anyway so the point of this is this seems like a gross thing that people, it was like well that's just what you have to do it's the right stuff and you have to do it and then when women were going into space I heard a story that people were like well you can't we can't have women pooping into a bag in space that just won't be on And and so we'll give women this nappy uh, and, and it'll be, and all the men started going, well, I want the nappy as well, because that's a far superior system. So it took, it took a woman to go into space as so someone to go, wait, how do we not be gross animals? In a, I <laughs> I just, I, I don't know if it's that simple, but it just amazed me that it, for some reason like, we don't want to offend the, the delicate sensibilities of a lady. So we will come up with a new way of, of, of defecating <laughs> in space. Greg
1: that is so spot on because because from my experience in archaeological fieldwork in in remote and even close places across Australia there's been a, a long tradition where um in fieldwork you kind of ignore all all bodily niceties mm-hmm. and you know you get as dirty and gross as you possibly can and you revel in it. And that's very much a sort of ethos driven by blokes.
0: Yep. Manly and, men being manly. Manly
1: manly men. Yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, the, the women usually just had to go along with this. And, of mm-hmm. course, we had a few extra challenges. So menstruating in the field mm-hmm. is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, going to the loo on a vast plain with not a single tree to be seen. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and particularly, well, look, I, well, you can imagine. There's can all kinds imagine. Of
0: stuff going on.
1: <laughs> but there is in more recent years, women have been saying, "Well, does it have to be like this? I mean, can't we bring some portable arrangement with us, or you know, at the very least, a privacy screen or something, mm-hmm. um, or even you know, a, a porta potty, or a, and then then suddenly they say, "Oh, okay. Well, I guess so. We'll put it in the budget. And here it is." And then you think you you do that, and then you think. Well, it wasn't that hard. We could have been doing this all along. Yeah, it's and- actually a cultural attachment to a certain kind of work and, and gendered embodiment of work that was the problem. It wasn't that women were the problem with our bizarre <laughs> toilet needs. So you're, you're absolutely right about that, Greg.
0: I, I find it funny. I, um, I'm not a big one for camping. I'm very much a city slicker. I, I like the outback. I've been to a lot of Western Australia and a lot of Queensland for work and I enjoy going out there. But I really enjoy coming back and having a shower and, and being clean. I, I, look, I admit it. It's fine. I, I'm a tourist. I always will be a tourist to the outback. And if someone said to me you can poop in a hole in the ground or you can have a toilet i know which one i'm picking Uh, (laughs) this is not a gendered thing i i and and why should the outback be uh um uh, denied my genius just because i don't want to poop in the ground
1: (laughs) i am totally on your page here
0: (laughs) (laughs) so uh, in fact do you watch um do you watch the the excellent tv program the expanse
1: do you know, I have never seen it, but I so. Many, I know so many people talk about it and talk about it so highly. I, I really do need to watch it one of
0: these days. It's a, it's a wonderful show, but I won't go into the whole thing. It's, everyone should watch The Expanse. It's great. It's up to season five. Watch all of them. They're amazing. But why I'm mentioning it is in, in the scene recently, two characters are on the run on Earth. They're back on Earth, and it's a, a man and a woman, and in, they're they're running away from people, and they're hiding in the woods. And in one scene, he's the main Amos is um, peeing up against a tree. That's how the scene starts. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, Oh, what's she doing? Oh, she's squatting. Oh, she's going to the toilet too. And it was such a, and they're back to back to each other. And because they're both warriors, they're both really mm-hmm. warrior type people. And I was like, Oh, that's what, that's exactly what she's doing. And I went, of course they're stuck in the woods and, and, and they're, they're not getting out for days and days. It makes perfect sense. And it's not a gross scene. I don't mean it that way. I just, I went. I had, hadn't even thought about that. How would that character, that female character, go to the toilet in the woods? And that, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't a focus of it. It was just how the scene started. And I was like, "That's so amazing." Anyway, yeah, that was. I just once again why I like the Expanse. Someone had thought this through and gone. Hang on a minute. How how, how does any of this work? And yeah, the, yeah. Anyway, I found it interesting.
1: <laughs> no, it is interesting because you don't normally see those things depicted, no. and and you know. When I was a girl, you know, I had this idea that um, I could do anything and I would read all these books about famous women explorers, like I was going to say Gertrude Stein, but I don't mean Gertrude Stein. You know who <laughs> I mean, like, like all these amazing women who went to all these places. And then, Greg, since we are on these kinds of subjects, then I had my first period mm-hmm. and I just thought, I thought, what the actual, like what is going on here? So when I was reading about all of these women, they were dealing with this stuff and I thought, how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you be Lady Jane Ellenborough Mm -hmm. riding through the deserts of Saudi Arabia when you've got terrible cramps and you're bleeding through your cloths every hour? How does that happen? And there were no answers to this, none. This was just a thing you didn't see or hear anything talked about and for me it was crushing i was like i have to wait for menopause to be rid <laughs> of this stuff anyway just just you know <laughs> it does make an impact to discuss and talk about this stuff and to see it as you've just described yeah it, yeah it obviously caught your attention but but this is important i think
0: it is absolutely is and why i've brought this up my our listeners probably like what is where is this going greg likes tangents but this is an exciting one but the the why i'm mentioning it is is, are there, is there a women's space heritage that we should be looking at? Is there something that, I mean, we always talk about, like the f- first footprints on the moon, we should protect those because you know, Neil Armstrong went for a wonder and we should protect that forever uh, and all these sort of cool things like that. But is, uh, is, there, is there women's heritage that we're just accidentally or purposely leaving behind?
1: Well, of course, heritage is my sort of field as a professional. And I have been working on the heritage value of space, places and things for quite some time now. But it wasn't until this year when I've been working as part of the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs Space for Women Network and doing a bit of tweeting around, you know, how it is that we tell the stories of women in space and provide inspiration for girls and women to sort of stay in STEM fields, mm-hmm. that I actually, I had this revelation. I think I was, I was writing, it was around the 16th of June, which is the anniversary of Valentina Tereshkova's orbit around the Earth. She was the first woman in space. And I just had this idea. I thought, what if we looked for places and objects that are associated with what women have done in space and some of those are going to be stories that we don't know about. So the film Hidden Figures, you mm. might remember, had just a huge impact. Absolutely. And and they were sort of hidden in plain sight. These were women and stories that were there all the time, but just overlooked and ignored.
0: Mm. And Highly re- yeah, Sorry I interrupt you. Just so people that like, people should definitely watch Hidden Figures. I learned a lot from Hidden Figures. Uh, I got to see it for uh, International Women's Day, and with a whole lot of uh, 17, 16 and 15 and 17 year olds, uh, female students. And, and I was watching this movie as a chaperone for this movie and, and was just when I, even I thought that they were, I knew they were clever women who were the computers, the women who do all the maths uh, or the people. In fact, it happened to be women, but they were people who did all the maths behind the moon landing. But I didn't realize that they basically programmed the computers and ran the whole damn thing. I, I, it was, it had never kind of occurred to me how deep their, their work had gone and we probably wouldn't have got to the moon as fast if it wasn't for them
1: yes and it's such an amazing story and it was so powerful for so many people to see themselves represented Mm. on the screen in that way and when I was thinking about it I mean I was really amazed when I had this idea I I thought how have I never thought of this before it seems like the most logical thing to do so I thought there are places that we know the stories, you know, the Apollo landing sites, launch sites, rockets, spacesuits, all that stuff. We know those stories so well. But what happens if you just kind of turn the lens backwards or take a step to the side and reevaluate some of these places, specifically looking for the women who were there or who were involved? Mm. And what if you do that for a lot of places and then you start to see sort of connections and networks and stories that you just had no idea were there? Hmm. So Hidden Figures is a fantastic example of that. But we also know there's, uh, well, groups of women, because in those days women were tended to be consigned to work that was perceived as repetitive and menial. And, Hmm. of course, part of our revisioning of this is to see that work not as repetitive and meaningful, meaning, what did I just say? Repetitive and meaningful, <laughs> but, but as highly skilled, requiring oh. a lot of expertise. So, so that's just a simple flip. It's the same work, it's the same women, but we just choose to redefine it. And the minute we do that, we've got a different story. Hmm. So another one people, uh, some people have heard of too is the spacesuits that were worn by Mercury, um, Apollo, astronauts. And for those, they needed people very skilled in in, in sewing. Mm-hmm. So oh, these course. were women. So there's a whole story about how women who actually worked in the Playtex factory, which manufactures bras, they had the right expertise to make these spacesuits.
0: Because back then so it we- wouldn't have been it wouldn't be machine manufactured. It would have been made by hand, I assume.
1: I think they did use machines, but they had to be used to so you know sewing the like the wires and the different layers. the The suits had multiple layers, so they had to, and they had to make them right because people's lives depended on. Them. <laughs> so there, there's a thing. Also, and I don't fully understand this. You might understand this better. The Apollo missions had core rope memory, mm-hmm. so the memory in mm-hmm. the computers was actually stored in so i'll just describe it as i understand it and you can explain it was stored in long cables and they would be woven into the computer Mm. and again so the the perception women do sewing it's repetitive it's it's menial it's domestic it's feminized it's low value work
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but these very skills turned out to be the ones that were needed to do this kind of work, so you recast it as this incredible expertise, and suddenly, like the the women who were literally called computers, computers, as you mm-hmm. said, it's a term that was originally applied to women, to people, not to machines.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So suddenly, the, it's not about repetitive manual work; it's about highly accurate and precise work,
0: yeah. done which, quickly. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Yes. So there's a, these are other alternative narratives around um, the Apollo missions. Hmm. Well, when
0: they so- when when they say things, when, the old adage: "If I saw further, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants." And I really like uh, for science, and I always try and sometimes I think when I see a, there's not many scientists like this, but sometimes you see a scientist, you just go, "You're a bit big for your britches," and you go, "You're standing on the shoulders of." Amazing people. Anyway, anyway, that's a different thing. So that's that's my own gripe, but it's not, neither here nor there. Uh, but in this case, the shoulders that sometimes people are standing on for the Apollo mission, for all sorts of things, were these women in these unloved and uncared for roles, and it wouldn't have happened without them. And and it, it wasn't like they were just following a manual, like okay, women, here's a book written by a clever man, go and you know, do what it says. So you're just doing a man's work, but for them. No, no, they had to work out how to do it all. They had to come up the best way. They used their human intuition to to make it better and then to to uh, translate those skills to, to actual computers, to the devices that we now use in everyday life. It, it's, it's, you're right. It's, it shouldn't be seen as, as media work.
1: But I want to take this uh, another step forward. So those are like the stories and the new lens that we're using to focus on them. But what I want to do with my women's space heritage list is centre the physical objects in that. Mm. So, you know, we can we can read about this stuff. And I've never seen one of these core rope memories in real life. I would love to now. But imagine that when you see the actual object, even more if you can touch it, but mm. if there are museums, often you can't touch it. It gives you a whole new understanding about what happened so there's so much memory and physicality that resides in the object so in the women's space heritage list it's a lot of it is about the stories but it's also about a place you can go to or an artifact you can see or smell or touch or hear Mm -hmm. as a way to kind of connect you it's like a physical way of connecting you to the people who made it or who were there or, and, mm. and it's something I'm not, I'm not describing it very well, but that's kind of what heritage is about. It's really about connections and communities.
0: People go to museums to, I mean, you can read about all day about cool things all around the world. When you go to a museum and you see artworks or you see cooking utensils or you see yeah. weapons or uh, or anything really made by another human being in another time or place it does center you a lot more. It makes it more real and you start being able to see the, the humanness in it. Like you can see the ooh, mistakes ooh. of it or the, or the perfection of it and it, it becomes a human artifact. And as a human, you can, I think, connect more. So actually having space, uh, objects, you can sort of go, Oh, that's a real thing. It's not something I saw on, on a TV show <laughs> or a movie. Greg,
1: you've also picked up on a, another really important point here, which is, you know, these objects aren't static even though we often see them at a certain moment in time some of the most interesting things are objects that broke were broken and were repaired or objects mm-hmm. where you see the little trace of a particular moment in time a particular human decision so i love seeing uh, graffiti or handwritten notes on space mm-hmm. hardware and or in you know the manual to operate something someone has hand annotated things in in the mm-hmm. in the all the and the mistakes are just as important as the perfection and mm-hmm. those things feel so human and just give you such such a feeling of connection and and a feeling of the object or place as dynamic mm-hmm. which That's i love good. and i think i think people i think people really respond to that too
0: we have a uh, i mean i we all have we all sort of carry mobile phones around with us nowadays pretty much and if we're lucky enough to have that sort of money and, and we, and I don't know how, I mean, I know how they work roughly, but I couldn't take one apart. I'm not that good. I'm not a maker in that sense. There are people who do love that sort of thing. And I'm I'm not super that far, but so we have this object, this it's all black glass and aluminium and it does magic. Basically <laughs> allows me to, <laughs> allows me to argue with strangers on the internet for all over the world. So, uh, and show pictures of cats, but it's really interesting when you see how objects are built and made. If you can actually take it apart yourself, if you can, if very uh, see the iterations that got you there. And sometimes when you're of a, of a certain vintage, like myself, uh, you've seen old phones, rotary phones. You've seen the <laughs> the home phones. You you remember having to sit close to the phone uh, because your cord couldn't go away, and it was embarrassing because your family could hear, uh, and you're trying to be in the other room, uh, which is. And all this kind of stuff. This is, and, and I'm not that old, but it's still much, very much in my that's memory. Right,
1: that's, that's the social context of the technology and the artifact, isn't it? Mm. The, the way it is, it's, it's construction and how you use it in turn creates a social environment which in what you're talking about it's it's sort of about privacy Mm. uh it's about growing up and family relations it's about all mediated through the length of that telephone call and that is exactly (laughs) it that is exactly the kind of thing the thing that we get from having the objects that just hearing someone talk about it doesn't give you
0: exactly right there's some great youtube videos where uh they take objects out to children and show them one was a rotary phone and i felt quite old i don't normally feel old i, I don't i don't mind that there are younger people in the world that i like working with them that, that doesn't offend me actually at all i don't <laughs> go oh i'm so old because you're so young it's a bit <laughs> weird but i saw these kids these like 10 year olds with a rotary phone with a rotary dial trying to work and I said and the and the and the the, t- the youtube announcer the influencer went dial this number and these and i was like how- come on kids you can do this it's not but they couldn't they, they were saying why would it take so long to go like from zero? Like, yeah, do the num- oh. le- number zero. Because, you roll, rotate and it goes, brrr, goes round. And they kept stopping it. They kept tapping it and then moving it one bit. And I was like, oh, of course. The, wa- the way we use these things is, is taught to us Monkey see, monkey do. Um, it, it, it wasn't built in. I find that fascinating. But having all these things, like phones from those phones right up to our modern day smartphones, I think gives you an idea. And if you're not lucky enough, lucky enough to be as old as as Gregoire <laughs> to have that experience, then you've got to see them in museums.
1: But you know that that story about the phones. Makes co- makes come into my mind something else I've been thinking about with this. So, so the the phone thing is a great example um, of just how quickly technology can change and yes. and and how impenetrable and opaque it can seem. And I often think this about the Voyager golden records. So, in 1977, <laughs> you know, these are the, some of the most famous space artifacts in the universe. In 1977, the two Voyager spacecraft were launched and they're now both out beyond the solar system. And each of them has a golden record with music and pictures and to represent the earth. And mm. on the outside is instructions of how to play them. There's a stylus included mm. and there's instructions of how to play them. And I am old enough to have, I used, I used to do a bit of community radio and I would queue up the records and You know, I know how records work, but I look at the little diagrams on the outside of the Golden Record and I think, well, I couldn't figure out how to use it. How is an alien going to figure out to use it? But moving on from the technology part, the Voyager Golden Records have a lot of women's space heritage on them too. So there are women speaking, and and one of my all-time favourites is Janet Sternberg, who speaks the Greeting in Portuguese to all of the humans of the future and aliens of the present. And she's she's an amazing woman. Uh, and there's many other women who are speaking in various ways. Then you have the images, and one that's always stuck in my mind, it's a, a picture of an African woman looking down a microscope. And it's, it's a sort of relatively small microscope and there's not a lot of information about it. I would probably have to go and do a bit more archival searching to find out more about it. It looks like on the surface, it looks like someone in an African nation who is doing health work, but I have no idea. Uh, and she's wearing quite uh, dangly, big dangly earrings. And there was a discussion when they were choosing that photograph whether the aliens would think the earrings were part of her body or not part of her body <laughs> discussion around that so that's a, a woman who is a scientist and and again, this is like recasting things, redefining things., yes. I call her a scientist. You could easily have said, well, sort of routine health assessments using microscopes is something that nurses or untrained people might do in some places but I choose to call her a scientist. So she, her picture is out in the interstellar space. That's so there's a story that would be fantastic to tell. And I'm sure who she is. I do have an idea. The photograph might be from a United Nations um, project of some kind. Um, I got some kind of contextual nuances that maybe think maybe that's what's going on. So, Something I would love to do is actually go systematically through the contents of the Golden Records and Mm. pull out all of the images and voices and music that relates to women and just see what's there. Like I don't necessarily even have uh, an agenda. Is that what I mean? I just want to see what's there so that I can see what other stories are, are hidden. It's like
0: work. a, it's like a time capsule as well. It's what people thought were important at the time. People who, were they trying to be diverse? What was their, what was their agenda? What were they trying to show? So, Cause I'm, I, as we all know, you work for organizations. I work for organizations and all your big ideas have to get filtered and changed to, to fit the budget and to mm. fit the organization's needs and wants. Uh, and so I wonder what that would look like. Uh, what they, what was the original idea? Uh, with the, with, I was just checking, check, quickly checking then. We also have, uh, on the Voyager probe, the location from different pulsars. So, so if they were smart enough to work it out, they can say, well, these are these pulsars and there's a dot at the center. That's the solar system. And so we, the aliens can find us basically. That's, that's work out where we are, which is quite clever because these pulsars will be visible from a very vast distances, like tens of millions of, or oh, many, many light years anyway. Uh, but on the other, I thought it was the Voyager, but it's actually the Pioneer plaque. There is a picture of two naked humans. <laughs> and it's very clever because they show a, a man waving his hand and a woman standing next to him, both naked. And behind them is the Pioneer dish to give you an idea of what they're trying to say is humans are this big, basically. Like we're not small. We're not big. We're the same size roughly as the Pioneer probe. But a lovely story, or I guess it's not a lovely story, but a story is they show the man's genitals. So you go, oh, well, that's his genitals right there, looking to picture them right now. And they don't show the woman's genitals. And the reason is they went, we can't possibly send a picture of a vagina into space. What will the aliens think? (laughs) Probably not that. But there was an idea. We can show a penis. We can't show a vagina. It still, what are you doing? Like At that point, you're like... that amuses me too much that, that they're like, so, you, so aliens, if they work it out, will go, men have a dangly, bit in the middle here. Women are just need to be smooth. They're flat. Like a Barbie doll. Like a Barbie doll.
1: Yeah, it's very weird.
0: Um, anyway.
1: it, is, it is very weird. So you're right, though, like these things hold conceptions of gender and sexuality and all of those things. Yeah. And I guess that's sort of part of part of what we'd be doing with the Women's Space Heritage List as well because, of course, it's not just let's add some women back in. Mm. Each mm. of these places or stories is kind of partially also about, well, why were they left out to begin with or why mm. were they downplayed? So I'm going to tell you another story
0: Please.
1: Here. Yep. You can just stop me at any time. So um, a while ago I was in a fortunate situation you will appreciate that where i began doing some heritage work on early radio telescopes in australia and mm-hmm. of course australia was has always been at the forefront of radio astronomy absolutely kind yeah kind of sort of Invented it after Carl Jansky in 1931. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, So
0: I'm I'm not wrong to say that. No, I think yeah, um, but you know, I think I think a lot of British people would be angry for saying it, but they can they can bugger off. Uh, yeah, That's Australians Australians think. have done amazing work in radio astronomy because the rest of the world had it wasn't I mean obviously there was it was astronomy in Australia indigenous astronomy, but as in astronomy with um with instruments wasn't something that was done in Australia uh, and a lot of it had already been done before Australia. Uh, for the whole white people coming to Australia thing. Let's not unpack that right now. And um, so radio astronomy was a whole new area to to work into. And the CSIRO did amazing work in that.
1: Amazing work. And one of the first and most important people to develop the field of radio astronomy was Ruby Payne Scott. Mm -hmm. Now, her name is quite well known now. But when I started looking into this, I mean, I was immediately intrigued when I thought, oh, hello, who's this? And her Wikipedia page at that point, one fact, I don't know that she had a Wikipedia page, but she was mentioned in the Wikipedia page of Joseph Pawsey, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and
0: of course, cause,
1: cause what they did, they did <laughs> this very famous experiment with a long baseline where they bounced a radio signal off the ocean to create an artificial baseline. And that was kind of, and then they did calculations which meant you could use a Fourier transform to do something. you know more about this than me, but that was critical. That is absolutely mm. a critical part of how radio astronomy developed, and she was one of the people who did it. Mm. But in the the when she was talked about in Wikipedia, it said, so on the original paper where that was done, there was her, I think it was Pauzy or one of those ones, and there was a bloke, and they said, so this piece of work. Pawsey did this. The bloke did this. Ruby Payne Scott was given this task to do. <laughs> oh no! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now you won't find this text anymore, thankfully, because mm-hmm. a lot of it. But that was, a, and, and I, then once I saw that, I started to notice it a lot. So, that so Ruby Payne Scott and the other bloke were PhD students of Pawsey or whoever it was, mm-hmm. and I started to see this a lot. Even though, and so they would have both been working under the supervision of. Yes. The yep. But I saw this description a lot where the men would be assumed to have autonomously with their own genius come up with these ideas, <laughs> whereas the women were just painting by numbers. They were mm-hmm. given something to do and they did it. That's all they did. It was surprisingly common and distressingly common. Yeah. Now, Ruby Payne Scott went on to work at radio astronomy field sites based around Sydney on all of these early radio telescopes. And she did incredible pioneering work. She had lots of lovely little obstacles. She was a fierce feminist and her male co-workers would do hilarious things like label the one toilet men only Mm. so that she would have to have you know they they thought it was so funny she was not amused neither would i have been <laughs> and that's just a little example of the shit she had to put up with
0: yeah there i was sorry
1: oh to say in the australian government employment or public service in those days when you got married you had to retire yes what so, so she did get married and she was forced to basically when she became pregnant it became obvious that she was you know she had sullied her purity by having anyway. (laughs) Gasp. She was forced to resign from her permanent full-time position and she was allowed to do sort of part-time contract work. So that was it. One of the most brilliant scientists Australia has ever had was forced out. But my point about the women's heritage, um, since then, someone has written a, a, a fantastic biography of her. Her work has been acknowledged. Her Wikipedia page is nothing like the one that (laughs) I recounted to you early on. But those places are all there. So Mm. all of those, not all of them, but there are still physical remains at these early radio astronomy antennas that were kind of dotted all around the greater Sydney region. Mm. So, We could frame them as really important places in the development of global radio astronomy, and they Mm. are, but we can also frame them as a story which includes Ruby Payne Scott and her experiences and the science that she did. And when you look into the literature, you suddenly find little references to all these other women. Mm. They're in the footnotes or they might be in a picture. They're not named. Yep. And, and this is the other critical point about what I want to do with the women's heritage list. Sometimes something as simple as giving a woman a name, like my African scientist on the Voyager Golden Records, making them a real person with a name and a life and a position, it's mm. simple, but it's incredibly
0: powerful. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. It's it's It, it makes it harder... <sighs> I've watched, this is not my fight, but I've watched a fight happen. And uh, a person I'm very lucky to work with, she's been on the podcast before, she's a PhD student, uh, Catherine Ross. And she. Oh, her
1: work is amazing.
0: Her work is absolutely amazing. I think she'll go far, that, that person. But she is pushing very hard to get more women recognized in the new south wales curriculum and australian curriculum in general because out of a hundred people who are recognized men who are recognized i think there's there are more fictional people recognized people like as in from tv shows that don't exist uh than there are just real what life female scientists on the past which is insane uh and then people i've watched her and it's such a hard draining exercise on twitter she's an advocate for women in science of course and people come and say oh well that's why are they not mentioned? this? because they didn't do anything. And it's this constant fight. And it's that, oh, yeah. <laughs> listeners, listeners, Alice, uh, Dr. Alice almost just fell off a chair at that point. <laughs> but it's that constant fight. And, and some people are, are being absolute douche nozzles. Don't get me wrong. There, there are bad actors who are just baiting, uh, Kat Ross and baiting other women and baiting anyone really. Yeah. But there are other people who honestly, when I read their tweets, I don't think, maybe I'm just trying to, maybe I'm, Maybe I'm being too nice to some men. That's fair enough. But no, uh, no, they're not doing it to be assholes. They're doing it because they don't know any better and, and they, they don't even know to, to, that they're being ridiculous. And it shouldn't be up to women like Kat Ross to go, you're being an idiot, but it's, I just want this information out there. So you can point out and go, no, no, shut up. Here's the information here. Here's Ruby Payne Scott. Here's, here's Herschel. Here are these other amazing women scientists who weren't just their male counterparts weren't just holding their tea and writing down their notes. These were actual amazing scientists in their own right doing groundbreaking work, which at the time just wasn't considered kosher. It wasn't considered. You weren't allowed to say my sister or my partner or my mother or my daughter or my female friend uh, did amazing science because you'd be laughed out of the academy. So it's
1: It's, it's that's such a interesting point because I have noticed um there are some people on Twitter who have been trying to get the Ada Lovelace or Lovelace, however you pronounce it, mm. thing so so there's been a, a rejigging of assessing her legacy, which is that she was right there at the beginning of computing, mm. played an important role. And that's been fantastic. So there's even an Ada Lovelace Day where people Mm -hmm. celebrate women in science and computing. But there are some people there who are saying you've got it wrong. She didn't do those things. She did not originate all of these things. And I'm all for accuracy in these things. But one of the, to try and describe it very briefly, one of these people doesn't have any understanding of sort of feminist scholarship in this regard. So Mm. when a male written text, for example, says, describes what happened, mm. they don't understand that you often have to read between the lines or do something. So if that, if that text were to say, what was his face? Who was the other bloke? It was Babbage, wasn't it? Babbage, yeah. yeah. He Babbage, Babbage made
0: the physical, made the actual yeah. engine or designed the base concept of the engine, yeah, the first computer so, kind of, yeah.
1: So if they say, oh, well, Babbage didn't say Ada Lovelace did this, so therefore she didn't.
0: mm <laughs> thereby absolutely
1: missing the point of a critical reading of the literature, of course he's not going to say that mm. because, as you just said, that was not how things work, that was not acceptable, yeah, so there's all there's people who don't have a good understanding of how you do this process, I guess, so because it, we're not like making things up or just spitting stories because makes us feel better Mm. this is actually based on scholarship and this Mm. scholarship involves understanding that the records of the time were made by people who were immersed in a worldview where women were less smart and where what they did was of of lower value merely Mm. by the fact they did it Mm. And, and as we've already talked a bit if you reframe things you suddenly get a different story and this is a really critical part of this process. It's still based on facts, if you like, but mm. sometimes you have to read between the lines as well. And Something mm. I do when I'm investigating things like this might be to just imagine the building that this work was going on in and even though no woman's name might have been mentioned as being in that building, you say, well, we know from the broader description that women were involved in the project. Therefore, at least some, at least some of the time must have been in this building. Mm. If they were in this building, then their experience would have been like this. Mm -hmm. No one has written that down. There is no sentence that says in the daytime when they were weaving the core rope memory for Apollo, the sunlight would come in and make it difficult to see. No Mm. one will have written that down. But it doesn't mean the process whereby you reconstruct the likely scenario is wrong. Yeah. So I, I think the 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 sort of process of feminist scholarship around this is actually critical, and people should be informed about it.
0: We're very quick to dismiss uh, we, as in men, I guess. Uh, sorry to all the male listeners. To right, let's just tie us with a brush at this point. As as a <laughs> as a as an honorary man, my honorary man myself. What does that mean? Anyway. <laughs> As the representative man, I think is what I meant. I was giving some secrets away then, I think. It's just pointing out how alien I am. But anyway, as a representative man on this part of the podcast, we have a habit of, of dismissing when someone says, as Dr. Alistair said, Oh, actually we women were involved X, Y, and Z. It's not written exactly. But we're going to read between the lines. There is a feeling you go. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Like, sure, sure. Like, whatever, whatever. But on the other hand, when it comes to a man, for example, Katie Mack, uh, Dr. Katie Mack was tweeting about this recently, saying how uh, people go, Einstein, the lone genius, did it all himself. He was a patent clerk. He was not part of the system. He was out there by himself. And even I had that idea as a child. He was just this man who was working as a patent clerk. And you know no, no, no. He was working on his PhD and PhD had to make money. And he was a patent clerk at the same time. And he was in the most elite university and mm-hmm. his... Best friend's father got him his job, who was a university lecturer, got him a job at the patent club. This is all from Katie Mack. I didn't find this myself, so please, I'm not just teasing her words here. And so yes, I'm not Einstein was a genius, don't get me wrong, but he had a lot of people helping him. But we don't talk about that. We we've written a narrative and we're willing to accept that narrative, the lone male genius, when actually it was a whole lot of people working together, uh, and even fixing. He wasn't very good at um uh, calculus, oh, I probably got that wrong, but mm-hmm. it, some sort of maths, and he had that had to be fixed in his relativity work because he wasn't. It made a mistake, and the whole thing was wrong. And one of his colleague, a man, went, "Wait, that's wrong." And but we don't, we don't even know that man's name. You, you can probably look it up. But as it, he's not like Einstein. And this guy wrote it. It's Einstein's theory of relativity. Uh, and so if 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 we, but we're willing to accept men as the lone genius, we're not willing to accept women's contributions, even as part of a group. It's, it's quite yes. <laughs> incredible, uh, and heartbreaking, to be honest. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it, it's, look, that's why we're here. That's what we're talking today. So, do you have any, physical artifacts that really move you any anything in the in the women's heritage what's the one that makes you just think oh my goodness people should know about this this one thing
1: well there is one thing I've been thinking about a lot I know barely anything about it but in 1963 as we've mentioned, Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space when she orbited the Earth. And when she came back to Earth, it just so happened that there was a World Congress of Women meeting in Moscow. So this had been planned for years, but it just timed really, really nicely mm. Her coming back. So, of course, they invited her to be the guest of honor. And the World Congress of Women was like this huge meeting of women from different organisations around the world, and a lot of them were sort of labour organisations. And a delegation of Australian women went to this conference. And there's a photograph of them in the archives of the ANU, and there's this huge, like, hall in Moscow uh, I forget its name, but there you go. That hall itself is, is a heritage place with mm. this kind of significance. Yeah. And they brought with them a scarf as a gift to Valentina Tereshkova. The scarf was made in Perth. That's all I know.
0: Oh, oh, that's, it's a good city.
1: And one of the delegates, her first name was Mary, and I forget her last name, so that's that's terrible of me, <laughs> but she was from Wollongong. And when Valentina Tereshkova came on the stage, there was like the crowd went wild Mm. and Mary managed to get close to Valentina, give her a hug and a kiss. And she said later that she thinks she was the first person at the Congress to do that. (laughs) And she gave her the scarf from Perth. I want to know where that scarf is, mm. who made it, what were the patterns on it. Is there like a Tereshkova collection? There's a big space museum in mm. Moscow and also, you know, Star City where the Cosmonauts Train her stuff. I mean, maybe she wore it and one day used it to wipe her spilt coffee up with and threw it away. <laughs> maybe she never wore it. Maybe it sort of went straight into, you know, it's, it's, when... Government employees. In a vault in the Kremlin
0: or something. It's like Maybe,
1: who knows? You, can't, you can't have these
0: decadent Western gifts or something.
1: And there's two sides to this story. <laughs> so I want to find, and I, I use Trove, which is the um, National Archives of Australia's repository. It's an incredible resource. It has newspapers, gazettes, books, magazines. You can search, just go to trove.au and, the things you can find out are amazing. So I've gone through every newspaper I can find to see accounts of this. So the, they, they had their week in Moscow. Then they came back to Australia. And coming from Wollongong, so one of the the um, organisations were sort of miners' organisations that they were involved in. So I want to know what were the resonances when these mm-hmm. women came back? Like, Did they bring objects from... From Russia, with them, mm. like uh, on mantelpieces around people's homes in the Wollongong area, would we find maybe the odd little icon or matryoshka doll or piece of Russian um, folklore objects, folk art that mm. came from this? Did they go out and talk to people? How how, how did this reverberate through? the the communities of these just everyday working-class women. Yeah. That's the story that I would love to tell.
0: It's it's one of the greatest uh, aspects of working in academia, which I really love, and it was something I'd never even thought about, is my access to people from around the world who are sometimes considered Inverted commas, political enemies or othered or whatever it is. Uh, where I'm at work, I work with a lot of people from China and it's, there's a lot of tension, political, geopolitical tension, in America and China and China and Australia. And then I work with people from Iran <laughs> and you're like, oh, hello again. Like, and, and amazing scientists from Iran and from all over the world, like a, a, every continent except Antarctica. I know Penguin colleagues yet. And though I have colleagues who have been to, have been to Antarctica and I love the fact that uh, in my experience, they're just people, they're just scientists and they don't, really no one's talking about the geopolitical concerns everyone's talking about the job or the, the the project you're working on uh not the not the thing that's happening at home which could change very very quickly uh and it's a it's a gift if you get an opportunity of that in life to meet these people go, oh you're just me you're just me with an accent that different to my accent that's mm-hmm. all it are they, they, everyone's very very similar in fact uh and i love the fact that with the story you just told then how women from Australia went to visit women in Soviet Soviet Russia at that time and how that was acceptable and a good thing to do. And I just, I I feel that it's always sometimes it's two steps forwards, one step back, Uh, but hopefully we are slowly moving forwards, slowly.
1: (laughs) Greg, you know, that's a wonderful story because something I hope would come out of my Women's Space Heritage list is all of those global connections and contacts and interconnections and networks and personal relationships, which, which show that, you know, sure, there were all these political divisions and economic divisions, but people managed to transcend them all the same.
0: We all speak one language, and that language is science. And uh, hopefully one day your gender won't impact how much communication science you can do and the recognition you get as well. Dr. Alice, thank you much for your time, and I will put all your links onto onto the show notes. So people can find you, Dr. Space Junk. Of course, they should read your amazing book, Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe. Sorry, I've the name of the book. I'm a terrible host.
1: <gasps> you are a, you are the best host. Oh. Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe, theology oh. in the future, and you will find many stories about women and their science in that book, including. The Venus of Willendorf, who makes an appearance. But I won't say any more about that. I don't know.
0: Spoilers. That's... <laughs> <laughs> well, but be well, Dr. Alice, and we'll talk to you again very soon.
1: I hope so. Thank you so much, Greg.